love gathering. I do. It is so good to be able to gather, you know, and, and I think in particular this morning, the text we're going to be looking at, it's really been heavy on my heart this week, how important it is for me and for you to gather together uh, and to be together, uh, to worship, to pray, and to study God's Word. So, Well, this morning, we are continuing our study in Luke's Gospel. We've been hanging out here for several weeks now, and today, we're actually going to be entering the next major section of, of Luke's Gospel. We are going to be um, over the next several chapters, really from now through nearly the end of chapter 9, Luke is going to be focusing on the ministry of Jesus in the area of Galilee. Now, over the past two weeks, we were looking at a couple of stories that took place just prior uh, to the start of Jesus' public ministry. These are like preparatory um, things that were happening in Jesus' life before he began his public ministry. And so we looked at the baptism of Jesus uh, in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And then that story was immediately followed by, uh, by Jesus going out into the wilderness of Judea to be tempted by Satan for a period of 40 days you know, while he was fasting. But this morning, the scene is going to shift away from the Judean wilderness, and we're going to, you know, which is down by the Dead Sea area. We're going to head now up into the area of Galilee. Now, this region of Galilee in the land of Israel runs from the northern side of the Jezreel Valley all the way up to Israel's northern border uh, with Lebanon. This is the area where Jesus grew up. This is the, the, well, he grew up in Nazareth, which is in the, the lower part of the Galilee. And it is a, it's a beautiful area, right? I mean, look at those pictures. It's actually probably one of my favorite areas to visit uh, in Israel. When we were there in June, uh, we went to Galilee before we went to Jerusalem. And the whole time we were in Galilee, I was like, man, I don't want to leave this place. This place is beautiful. And our, and our tour guide kept saying, yeah, but wait till you see Jerusalem. And I was like, wow, Jerusalem was great. But I got to tell you, I can't wait to go back to Galilee. I just, it is a beautiful area. And this is the area where Jesus grew up. Of course, one of the most memorable landmarks in the Galilee is the large freshwater lake that's called the Sea of Galilee. Um, if you take a look at the pictures up there on the screen, oh, should have a pictures over there of the Sea of Galilee. Can you pull those up for me real quick, Liam? Yeah, right there. Look at that. Isn't that incredible? sunrises, sunsets. This, this is the area where Jesus spent most of his ministry all around this, this sea. And it is an absolutely breathtaking place to be. Um, by the way, the waters there aren't always that calm. Um, as you know, some of the stories uh, that took place, some of the storms that took place out on that sea. And uh, most of Jesus' followers, his, well, his you know, 12 disciples, a lot of them were fishermen who worked right on that sea. The Sea of Galilee also provides most of the drinking water for, for Israel, uh, as, you know, as well as a large uh, part of their industry with fishing. So, but uh, this area of Galilee, particularly the upper Galilee, uh, towards the northern area uh, near Lebanon, was home to uh, many Gentiles. These are non-Jews. And because of the higher concentration of Gentiles in this area, many of the Jews down in Judea, close to Jerusalem and that area, especially 
religious leaders like the Pharisees, they, they really looked down on the people of Galilee and they treated them like second-rate citizens, you know? If they, if they were talking to somebody who's from Galilee, it's like, ew, you know? They're from Galilee, you know? They looked down on them. I'm not going to name any areas of the United States that we might do similar things to, but you know that that happens. It happens in, in regions of a country. It also happens even within a state, right? There are parts of maybe Maine that you go, ooh, right? Hopefully it's not where I live, um, but, but that's the way it was at the time of Jesus, that uh, many of the Jews looked down on those who were from Galilee. And apparently, Galileans were really easy to pick out because people from Galilee had a distinguishable accent. In the same way that you can tell if somebody is from Boston by where they park their car, right? Or somebody's from New Jersey where they have hot dogs and things like that. Or maybe it's if you're all from, from, from down in Texas, y'all maybe, that's not a very good Texas accent. I need to work on that one. So, or how about Minnesota? Oh yeah, you betcha. So uh, Minnesota, but the thing is when you meet somebody, a lot of times, depending on where they're from, you can tell right away. You're like, oh, I know where you're from. You're from the Southwest or you're from the Northeast or, you know, you're from Minnesota. But that's the way it was with people from Galilee. And there's a story in Matthew chapter 26 where Peter is accused of being one of Jesus's followers. And uh, it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was arrested and he follows them to the courtyard, right? And they're, and they're coming up and they're accusing him of being one of Jesus's followers. And one of the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Isn't that awesome? Like they knew, like you're from Galilee. You can't hide that you're a Galilean. We can hear it in your voice. So this is the area where Jesus is gonna spend the bulk of his earthly ministry. You know, although he is gonna make trips, he's gonna make trips down to Jerusalem. He's gonna make trips into areas like Samaria. The majority of his time will be spent up in the area of Galilee around the sea. So if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Luke chapter four. And we are picking up our study in verse 14. Luke chapter four, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So as Luke is beginning to start this next section, he starts out with a short summary statement about the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. He says that Jesus, being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit, returned to the area where he grew up. By the way, that is something that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Over, over 700 years before Jesus was even born, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would minister in the area of Galilee. In Matthew chapter 4, Matthew quotes Isaiah the prophet, and he writes these words, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These were the lands that were given to these two tribes were in the area of Galilee. The way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light 
has dawned. It was a prophecy saying that the Messiah was going to bring a light into this dark area, the area of Galilee, the Galilee of the Gentiles. And in Luke's opening summary, he says that Jesus was traveling around teaching in their synagogues, being glorified by all. The news about Jesus was going out throughout all the surrounding country. Okay, I want you to picture this. Jesus is traveling from village to village and town to town. He's traveling all around the area of Galilee. And as he's visiting each area, he is teaching in their synagogues and people are amazed at what they're hearing, right? So naturally they begin to talk and and they tell their friends and, and they're talking to their neighbors and they're talking about him in the markets and talking about this rabbi that they heard in the synagogue. And before you know it, news about Jesus is spreading all around this area of Israel throughout the region of Galilee. He is becoming a household name. People are talking about him, you know, again, when they're in the market or, you know, walking or talking to their neighbors. If they had social media, right, he would have been all over everybody's news feed, right? The, the rabbi who's traveling around in all the synagogues. Have you, have you heard about the new rabbi in town, this Jesus? Have you heard about him? Did, did, you, hear what he, did you hear what he taught up in Capernaum? Wow, what a message. Did you hear what he did over at that wedding in Cana? They ran out of wine and he shows up and he turns the water into, it was amazing. And so word is spreading all around the area of Galilee about this new rabbi. Now, something that I should point out here is that the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't really tell us too much about these early months of Jesus's public ministry. Luke really just sums it up in these two verses, verses 14 and 15. But if you read John's gospel, John provides us with a closer glimpse into these early months of Jesus's ministry in Galilee, as well as some of the the early ministry that Jesus did down in Judea and in Samaria. In John's gospel, you know, we read the story about the initial calling of his disciples, some of his disciples. We read about his first miracle that I just mentioned that happened in Cana. We read about the conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, John chapter 3. In fact, probably the most famous verse in in the Bible, John 3.16, comes from that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. We also read about Jesus visiting with a, a Samaritan woman at a well in Samaria, right? That's all in John, John chapter 4. This time period that Luke summarizes into just two verses would probably have been at least months, as much as a year, the first year of his public ministry. But I want you to notice something, because I think this is really important. While there is no doubt, there is absolutely no doubt to me that Jesus' miracles would have added to his fame, right? Naturally, you hear about a guy doing miracles like turning the water into wine, you hear about this stuff, naturally, it's going to spread around and it's going to draw attention to him. But notice what Luke highlights in this passage. Luke's not focused on the miracles, is he? It's not the miracles. As magnificent as and important as they are, Luke highlights his message. Luke says that he was teaching in their synagogues, 
and he was being glorified by all. His message brought him glory. Isn't that great? Luke wants you to understand that, yeah, okay, yes, so he did miracles, and Luke's going to talk about the miracles, but he wants you to understand as Jesus was teaching in these synagogues, he was being glorified by all. His message brought him glory. Next week, we're going to read in verse 32 that they were astonished at his teaching because his word possessed authority. Jesus' teaching was different than all the other scribes. It was so different when Jesus came and taught. And so Jesus is traveling around. He, he's visiting towns. He's visiting all these villages all around Galilee. He's performing miracles, and he's teaching in their synagogues, and his fame is spreading throughout the region. And now, after however long it's been, months, maybe as much as a year, now it's time for Jesus to return home. He's going back to his home town, the town of Nazareth where he grew up. You know what? Think about this for a second. What happens when somebody from your area goes away and they make it? They make it big, right? They like throw parades and stuff when they come back, don't they? It's a big, it's a big deal. I know in sport world, if anybody in Maine makes it like to like the minor leagues of any professional sport, we're like, so-and-so made it, Right? Like, well, no, they didn't make the NBA, but still they made the G League, right? It's a big deal when somebody makes it from your hometown. Well, Jesus is coming back. His fame has spread. He's showing up. And in verse 16, Luke writes, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Let's talk about the synagogue because the synagogue is something new that appears on the pages of Scripture as you move from the Old Testament into the New Testament. When you read the Old Testament, there is no mention of a synagogue. It didn't exist in the Old Testament times. In the Old Testament, Jews went to the temple for worship. And they did that until 586 B.C. In 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came into Israel and destroyed the, the temple. He destroyed Jerusalem and he took the, uh, the Jews captive back to, to Babylon. And while they were in captivity, while they were there in Babylon with no temple to go to, faithful Jews would gather together, probably in homes, and they would worship, they would pray, and they would study God's word. Well, eventually, the Babylonians were overthrown, and, and, and Persia, the king of Persia, allowed the, the Jews to return to their, to their homeland. And when they came back to their homeland, they continued to gather in these local gatherings. And eventually, some, probably somewhere around 400 years, um, well, probably more like 300 years before Christ was born, but in that intertestamental period, during the time between the old in the New Testament, these local gatherings began to be called synagogues, and they built these buildings where the local Jews would come together, and they would worship, and they would pray, and they would study God's Word. They didn't do sacrifices there, right? Because sacrifices still needed to be done at the, at the temple, which they had rebuilt. So, the synagogue, in many ways, was very similar in purpose to what we would now call the local church gathering. 
you know, whether it's a, whether it's a home church or, or a small little country church, or maybe it's a mid-sized church, or maybe it's a, a mega church, the gathering place is supposed to be a place where followers of Jesus gather to worship, to pray, and to study God's word together. It's a privilege that we have and a blessing that we have to be able to come to a place like this to worship, to pray, and to study God's word together. But you and I both know that not everyone sees it that way, right? There is a growing sentiment amongst those, many of whom call themselves Christians, that they don't need to gather in a local church. They don't need this. They don't need it. They think that all they need is their relationship with Jesus. But I want you to see something in this verse. Uh, this, is, this is huge. In verse 16, we read that Jesus, when he returned to Nazareth, as was his custom, as was his habit, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now listen, I think we can all agree. If there was ever, 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 ever anyone who could say, I don't really need to go to the local gathering of believers. It had to be Jesus, right? I mean, he walked in step with the Spirit all day, every day, perfectly united with God the Father. He prayed continually to his Father. He worshiped God in everything he did. And as far as his knowledge of the Scriptures, seriously, right? What could, the, what could they possibly teach Jesus about the Scriptures in the synagogue, right? He's like, I'm so glad I went to church today because they taught this thing. I didn't even know that. Jesus would never say that, right? He knew the Scriptures better than anyone. And yet, and yet, he went to the synagogue regularly as was his custom, as was his custom. So when you're talking to a friend, it's not, not, not in a mean way, but just like seriously. And they say, well, I don't really need the church. I have a relationship with Jesus. That's good enough. You say, well, Jesus did. He was closer to God than you will probably ever be, right? And he went to the church regularly. He gathered at the synagogue. It was his habit. Fully aware of all the imperfections in the people, right? Because that's an excuse, right? I don't want to be a part of a church that's full of a bunch of hypocrites. Great, you'll fit right in, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Jesus knew, and by the way, at the time when Jesus shows up, corruption in, in the religious world was terrible. It was terrible. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, I mean, it was a mess. And Jesus still continued to faithfully gather. It was his habit to go. He continued to show up. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, we need to gather and to be with one another, and all the more as we see the end drawing near. 
You know, God has given each and every one of his children spiritual gifts, and those gifts are to be used for the building up of his body, the church. And so that means when you're not here, when you're not here and you're not investing your your life as a follower of Jesus in the local church, you are depriving the body of a gift that God gave you for the body. Do you think about that? I I think so so often we think, I got to go to church for me. No, I need to go to church for them, for them. God has called me to minister to these people. And I'm not talking about just me, you, right? God has called you to minister and use your gifts to help build his, his church. The writer of Hebrews says that some are in the habit of neglecting the gathering, right? They were in the habit of that. Jesus was in the habit of joining the gathering. That was his his custom. So as was his custom on the Sabbath, Jesus went to the local synagogue. And at the end of verse 16, we read that he stood up to read. You know, in the same way that there are, there's a typical sort of order to the service in most churches today, there were certain elements that were part of the synagogue gathering as well a prescribed order for their service. And some of the elements that you could expect when you went to the local synagogue included uh, the reciting of the Shema, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And it keeps going. You could also expect that there would be prayers. There was a whole series of of prayers, uh, memorized prayers, There would also be readings from the scriptures, two readings usually. Uh, The scrolls would be brought out and someone would stand up and read. First, there would be a reading from the law, which would be from the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. And then there would be a reading from the prophets. And then following the readings, there would be a time of instruction or teaching about those passages. And this teaching would be done by one of the local leaders or if there was a visiting rabbi present, they would be invited to instruct and to teach. And then typically the, the synagogue would close with a, with a benediction. If there was a priest that was present that day, then the priest would, uh, would pronounce a blessing over the people. Well, by the time that Jesus shows up in Nazareth, you know, word of his fame again had spread. So, you know, as he shows up that day, they had heard about you know, all of his teachings, they'd heard about his miracles. And so naturally they invite Jesus as this visiting rabbi and the hometown hero to be the one who would teach that that day. Now, the text doesn't say it. The text doesn't say this, but I don't think it's, a, it's too big of a leap to suggest that the synagogue was probably crowded that day, Right? I mean, Jesus is back in town. The, the, the guy that we saw grow up, the guy who worked with, with his father Joseph in the carpenter's shop, we've heard about all that he's doing all around Galilee, and now he's coming home. Everybody's gonna come to hear what Jesus has to say. They wanna see, maybe, maybe he'll perform a miracle here in our town as well. Imagine, if he did that in Cana, imagine what he'll do for the hometown crowd, Right? This is the thought that was likely going through their minds. And so Jesus is there and and he's invited to teach. So he stands up to read. And in verse 17, Luke says, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, I really want to try to help you picture this this scene. So one of my favorite places that we visited uh, last summer was the first century synagogue that was discovered in Magdala. And uh, this, this synagogue was found in 2009. So actually not very long ago. Was it 14 years ago? 14 years ago, they're digging in Magdala and, and they uncover this synagogue. In the picture, you can see there's, uh, there's these beautiful mosaic tiles that are on the floor. And right, right see where that, that circular mosaic is? This is the area where there would be a cabinet. And in that cabinet, they would keep the scrolls. All the scrolls would be contained in the cabinet. The attendant would come up to the cabinet. They would grab the scrolls and then they would bring the scrolls down. Do you see that table right there in the center? They would lay the scroll onto the table. The rabbi, in this case, it was Jesus, would come up, unroll the scroll. They didn't have a Bible like you have, like just turn the pages like this, right? So it's the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which if you've read the Bible, you know that Isaiah is a long book. It's a big scroll. And he's reading from Isaiah 61 and he's unrolling the scroll and he's looking for this spot. And he takes him to Isaiah 61 and he reads from that scroll. And then after the reading, the scroll gets handed back to the attendant who puts the scroll away back in the cabinet. Jesus sits down probably in a seat that is particularly set apart for that teacher. And everybody's looking at him and waiting to see what he's going to say. Now, we know We know that we know that Jesus taught in many of the synagogues in the region of Galilee. Scriptures tell us that. He taught in all their synagogues as he traveled around. So it is quite, quite probable. It is quite probable that Jesus would have stood and read from the scrolls right there by that table in Magdala, in that picture. When I was there, I literally couldn't move, just standing there and closing my eyes and picturing Jesus teaching here in that synagogue. And you can see the, see the shape and, and, and the people would sit all around in a, in a circle. This, this synagogue here in Magdala, which by the way is only just a you know, dozen miles or so away from Nazareth, not very far. This is right along the, the Sea of Galilee, Magdala is. And um, this, this is a small synagogue, probably seats about 60 to 80 people. And so probably very similar in size to what you would expect to see in, in Nazareth. So Jesus stands up, he takes the scroll, he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, verses one and two. Of course, again, in, in, the, in the Hebrew scrolls, there is no chapters and verses, right? You know that it was just written out. So it's not like he could just thumb through, where's 61? No, he's got to know these scriptures and he finds the place and he reads verses one and two in, in Isaiah, Isaiah 61. Now, this passage from Isaiah chapter 61 is a messianic passage. The people knew that this passage was referring to the anointed servant of God who would come. So I want you to picture this this scene for a moment. Jesus, who we know is the Messiah, unrolls a scroll. He reads from this passage, and this passage literally contains what 
could be called his job description, you know? He's reading about these are the things that the Messiah is going to do. And it's written like in the first person, isn't it? Now, we don't have an audio recording of Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome if we had an audio recording of Jesus reading it that day? But I am absolutely convinced that Jesus, when he read these words, he read them in a very personal way. Why? Because he knows that they are written about him. And so in a very personal way, I hear Jesus reading these words saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stopped reading. And he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down and everybody's eyes are fixed on him. Everybody's eyes are glued on Jesus. They are sitting on the edge of their seats and they're wondering, wow, what is he going to say now? Because I just heard him read that as though it was written about him. And you know that word was spreading throughout Galilee that this rabbi, he's, he's teaching differently. He's, he's performing miracles. People are talking about the, this might be the Messiah. And they've heard this. And now he's reading this passage as though it's written about him. And they're like, what's he going to say next? What's going to happen? Before we talk about what he says next, there's something really significant that I really want to point out. I want you to see this. Something really significant not just about what he read, but what he didn't read. Jesus chose to stop reading right in mid-sentence, right in the middle of a verse. He stops the reading, and, and everybody who's there who knows these passages is like, whoa, whoa, you forgot a part. Why did you stop there? And now, for those who know the Scriptures, they're like, what is going on here? This is strange. Because verse 2 in Isaiah 61 says that the Lord has sent his anointed servant to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance of our God. Jesus intentionally stops with the Lord's favor and he leaves out the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Why would Jesus leave that out? Well, the answer is in what he says next. Because after Jesus hands the scroll back to the attendant and he sits down and everybody's look at them, they're like, what's he gonna say next? What's he gonna say next? In verse 21, we read, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus says, I am the Messiah. These words of Isaiah that I just read were written about me and they are being fulfilled right now. So why didn't Jesus continue and read the rest of that verse? Because the second half of that verse is not being fulfilled right now. The second half of that verse will be fulfilled later at his second coming. He is opening their eyes to see something that I don't even think Isaiah knew. 
I don't think Isaiah knew that there was going to be two comings of the Messiah. But Jesus stops right in the middle of the Messiah's mission and breaks it into two because Jesus knows that I'm coming once to be the Savior. The Lamb will be slain, but I will come again as a lion and I will bring judgment upon all those who are enemies of God. But that's not right now. And so today is the day of God's favor. That's what Jesus is announcing. Jesus says, I am the anointed one. I'm here to to declare good news to the poor, liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom to those who are oppressed. This is the time of the Lord's favor. And you know, as we read the rest of Luke's gospel, you know this, if you've read the gospels, you know that Jesus fulfilled every single one of those things, didn't he? Absolutely. This is great news. This was incredibly good news that Jesus was giving to them in the synagogue that day. But it's not just good news for them. It's good news for us as well, because guess what? We are still living in that time period between his first and his second coming. We are still living in the time of the Lord's favor. That's great news. That's great news for those who don't yet know him because it means there's still hope that they will come to know him. So Jesus says, Jesus says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And in verse 22, we read, and all spoke well of him, marveled at the gracious words that were coming from, him, from his mouth. These are gracious words. These are good words. I love what I'm hearing here. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? You see, on the one hand, they are impressed. His reputation that had gone before him, he's a great teacher. He really is. He's a great teacher. They've heard the stories. Now they're hearing it firsthand like, wow, such gracious words. But they're not convinced. They're not convinced. After all, they've known Jesus since he was a young boy. They watched him grow up. They, 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 they say, these are great words, but the Messiah? I mean, this is Joseph's son, right? This is the carpenter's kid. Yeah, he got great grades in school. He was nice to everybody, but the Messiah can't be. No way. Well, Jesus, he can read their body language. He sees it. He can see it in their eyes. He can see them whispering amongst themselves. Isn't that Joseph's son? It doesn't make any sense. He can't be the Messiah. And so in verse 23, he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, which is basically saying, do a miracle. What we've heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus looks at him and he says, I know what you're thinking. I know what's in your hearts. You don't believe my words. But because this is my hometown, you think I'm somehow obligated to bless you with a miracle. You're not here for the truth. You're here for a show. I love what Chuck Swindoll says about Jesus performing miracles. He says, When people came to Jesus wanting to believe, he gave them signs to validate their decision. 
But when people came to Jesus looking for a reason to reject him, he gave them all they hoped to find. As we read the Gospels, it is clear that Jesus performed many, many miracles, but he never, ever did it as a way to just entertain the crowds. Never. It was always about bringing glory to God the Father. It was always about helping and serving others. It was always about confirming his identity as the Son of God for those who were truly seeking. The Jews who were gathered in the synagogue that day did not believe his words, and therefore they would not receive a sign. In verse 24, Jesus continued, he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. This had been a pattern for the Jewish people throughout their history, repeatedly rejecting the messengers of God that had been sent to them. You've probably heard the saying that familiarity breeds, what is it? Contempt. These folks from Nazareth were unwilling to embrace Jesus' message because they had already made their decision about who Jesus is. They were unwilling to see the possibility that the Messiah had grown up in their town. You know, many of you have experienced similar challenges in trying to share your faith with the people that you're closest to, haven't you? Many times, those who have known us the longest are the hardest for us to reach. And I can just tell you that in those instances, for me anyway, the best thing sometimes that you can do is just to continue to let your light shine before them. Let them see the work that God is doing in your life. Don't pretend to have it all together. Let them see your failures, but then let them know that you're forgiven. You know, let them see what God is doing in your life and pray, pray fervently that God would place someone in their life that they are more likely to listen to. Jesus says no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Then in verses 25 through 28, Jesus reminds them of two stories from their history, two prophets that God had sent that, uh, that the nation didn't exactly listen to when they came. And the words that Jesus is about to share with this crowd Man, does this crowd fill up with rage. They, they, if there was like an anger switch, they go from zero to 100 in about oh, however long it takes to read this passage. Okay, not very long. Jesus says in, in verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a, wood, a widow. By the way, that's up in the area near modern-day Lebanon. And there were many lip, uh, lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. The Syrian, he was the, he was the commander of the Syrian army, which... The Syrians and the Jews did not get along. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, with wrath. You might be thinking like, wow, what got under their skin? Anger issues, right? Much? 
I mean, a few minutes ago, they were enjoying his teaching, hoping that maybe he'll entertain us with a miracle. Now, their blood is boiling. What, what is going on in, in these two stories that makes these people so, so, so angry? Jesus looks at them and he says, hey, guys, you remember the story when God used Elijah to bless and minister to a Gentile widow? It wasn't because there were no Jewish widows who were starving in those days. You remember the story where God used Elisha to heal the commander of the Syrian army? It wasn't because there were no lepers in Israel during those days. Jesus says, in both of these stories, God made the choice to pour out his blessing and favor on a Gentile. Passing over Jews, he poured out his favor and his blessing on Gentiles. Gentiles who believed and obeyed the words of God's prophets. Basically, what Jesus is saying to them is that the blessing and favor of God is not reserved for the hometown crowd. God's blessings and favor are not reserved for just you Jews. God's blessings and favor are with those who believe and obey. And a person who believes and obeys, whether they're a Gentile or, or, or not, is better than a Jew who doesn't. That's what he's saying to them. Even Gentiles, even Gentiles. And this sends them into a fit of rage. You see, there was nobody on the earth that, that a pious Jew hated more than Gentiles. They were the lowest of the lows. They were despised. They believed that Gentiles were forsaken by God and that God only cared for his chosen people. Man, if they just read the Old Testament and listened to what it said, they could not have formed that conclusion. Instead of embracing their role as the conduits of God's blessings to the whole world, which is what God said he was going to do with Abraham, right? That you're going to be a blessing to the nations, Instead of being a conduit, they believed that God's blessings were reserved for them and them alone. And now, and now, here's Jesus, the, the, the hometown boy that they watched grow up, standing in their Jewish synagogue, claiming to be their Messiah, and telling them that God's blessing and favor would pass over them and go to Gentiles? Gentiles? Now, this is so, so much more than their pride can handle, right? And rather than, than hear what Jesus is saying, rather than recognize that God has always had a heart for the nations, God has always had a heart for the nations, rather than repent and admit that they were wrong, instead, we read in verse 29, that they rose up, drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. They are so filled with rage that they decide to take Jesus up to the precipice and throw him over the cliff. The town of Nazareth sits at the edge of the Jezreel Valley. No doubt, as, as a young boy growing up in this village, Jesus would have spent many hours standing on the brow of this hill. Just thinking about all the history from the Old Testament that unfolded 
in that valley and along the mountains that surround that valley. Even, even the story, we just talked about Elijah, right? Elijah and his standoff with the prophets of Baal, that happened on Mount Carmel Range there on the other side of the Jezreel Valley. And so Jesus growing up would have spent plenty of time up along these hills overlooking that valley. And now as he returns home and he announces his ministry, announces that the Messiah is here on that very same hill, they are ready to throw him to his death. Well, it wasn't his time. It was not his time. And Luke doesn't tell us how, but God miraculously delivered Jesus from their hands. Turns out they did get to see a miracle that day, right? I mean, you got an angry mob that is intent on one thing, murdering this man, throwing him over the cliff, and somehow he passes in their, through their midst and he escapes. He leaves. I'll close with this. Jesus' message has always been received with mixed responses, hasn't it? Some people accept his message while others reject it. And the question that every single human being on planet earth has to answer is, what am I going to do with Jesus's claims? Because right now we are still living in the time of his favor. This is the time of his favor, but there is a day coming when Jesus is going to return and it will be the day of vengeance of our God. That is coming. And you want to, trust me, you want to be on the side of his favor, not on the side of his, his vengeance. And it's not a scare tactic. It's like, oh, wow, Chris is trying to scare me. No, I'm just trying to tell you the truth. I just want you to know that this is what Jesus said. And Jesus said, I'm coming again. He is going to come again. So listen once more. Let me just read Jesus's words. Words that he wants you and me to hear as well. The same words that he spoke to that crowd in the synagogue in Jerusalem, he wants us to hear as well. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the anointed one that Isaiah prophesied. He is the Messiah. And he came, he came, if you just listen to what he's saying to you there, he came to bring freedom to your soul. He wants to heal, heal the broken parts of your life. He came to bring healing into your life. Don't reject him. Don't reject him. Believe and receive his words. Turn to Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and allow His grace, allow His mercy and His blessings and His favor to be poured out in your life. This is the day of the Lord's favor. You can experience all of that, but you've got to make a choice. Do you believe Him? Do you believe Him? If you are here today and you have never put your faith in Jesus, make it today. Turn to Jesus. Invite him to be your Lord and Savior. It's the mission for which he came. He came for you. Make today the day you choose to do that. And if you want to talk about that decision, 
uh, please come and talk with me after the service. I'd be happy to sit down and talk with you and pray with you as you turn your life over to him. It's the best decision you'll ever make. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the hope that we have in you. Thank you so much that you came to set us free. God, every single one of us, every single one of us was enslaved to sin. Every single one of us had a judgment on our life that that we would be eternally separated from you, but you sent your son Jesus into this world to set us free from that judgment. You sent your son to live a perfect life and to die in our place. He paid, for the pri- he paid the price for our sins when he died on the cross, God. And then he rose from the grave and defeated death. God, I pray that if there's someone here today that doesn't already have a relationship with you through your son, Jesus, that today would be the day that they would receive the gift of salvation. This is the day of your favor. I pray that they would receive it and experience all that you have for them, all the grace and the mercy and the joy that comes with having a relationship with your son. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.